in uh, the second letter to Timothy from Paul, he gives us great verse, right? Uh, and I love First and Second Timothy because I'm a pastor, and it's Paul writing to a pastor who has a lot of challenges and a lot of problems and a lot of fears and a lot of enemies and a lot of just hardship in the practical things of life and ministry. And so to bring this encouragement, Paul gives one of the great promises of the New Testament. He says, God has not given us, all of us, He has not given us a spirit of fear, but rather He's given us a spirit of power and love and self-control. It's one of the great promises that we don't have a spirit of fear. When we came to Christ, when we were brought in by His grace to the cross and we confessed our sins and cleft our life to Him, when that happened, I mean, at that moment, He says, I've deposited my spirit in you. There's nothing for you to be afraid of. I've given you love. I've given you power. I've given you self-discipline. Like I said, a great promise. But as I thought about it this week, and I was dealing in the text we're going to look at in a couple of minutes, I couldn't help but think, why does it seem that for such a lofty promise, that promise seems elusive to our lives? I mean, why is it that we hear we don't have the spirit of fear, but so often in our lives we find ourselves caked in or challenged by worry, Doubt, anxiety, uncertainty, preoccupation with what's going to happen tomorrow or next year. I mean, why is it for all of this promise that we are a fearless people? Does it seem like so often in our lives we spend our time fearing something or fearing someone or fearing some time more than being as fearless as this passage says? Why is it that our outlook is not more hopeful Optimistic, determined, lighthearted. Why do we suffer from those things? See, as we've been going through this whole series, I'm realizing more and more as we look at every story that, that it seems that what the human condition is, is we always want the conditions to change, to drive or dictate whether we have hope or joy or happiness or peace or contentment or whatever. We, we want conditions to, to shape those outcomes. And yet so often what God chooses to do is say, no, 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 the conditions are, are probably going to be pretty rough and pretty challenging and pretty hard. And even in yourself, you're never going to accomplish what you want to. And therefore, you need to let me be your hope, me let be your comfort, me be your guide, me be your strength. I must be the one you seek, my spirit of fearlessness. Otherwise, you will fear. I found myself challenged even over the weekend as I thought about this. And I thought, you know what, we have this fearless spirit. But as a faith within our culture, there would be many labels applied to Christians. But I'm not sure people would say, oh, Christians, those are those fearless ones. Uh, we would be some good things. Uh, we would be some maybe less flattering things. But I'm not sure we would be characterized as fearless. In fact, in some ways, we might even almost be categorized as fearful. Because we talk about who our enemies are and what we're concerned about and how our culture is coming apart. And, and when we say that, we don't say that uh, cleaving to God, but sometimes we say it as though God isn't always in the equation with us. Fearful. 
not fearless. And so as I analyze this, I'm like, Jesus, why is that the case? Why is that even the case in my own life? I realized the answer was an answer I didn't like. The answer is, frankly, we're too practical. We're just too practical for our own spiritual good. We've become very practical as Western American Christians, right? We get into function really quickly. So on a daily kind of basis, we find ourselves doing a lot of things. But we don't often find ourselves seeking our God. We find ourselves acting in a lot of ways, but we don't find ourselves dwelling with the one who gives us a fearless spirit. Right? We find ourselves functioning and helping on a daily basis, but we don't always find ourselves worshiping on a daily basis. In other words, like I said, we just get practical. And in that spirit of being practical, we say, I'm so practical when things come up. I just want solutions. I'm not asking for endurance. I just want to have relief, not necessarily refinement. See, these are all those practical realities we face. And so when I keep looking at these different Bible stories, I keep coming to this place of, but what was their secret? I mean, what was the secret of Abraham? What was the secret of Moses? What was the secret of Joseph Joseph today? What is the secret to Joshua's life? Their sense of fortitude, their sense of endurance, their sense of strength, their sense of fearlessness. And I realized quickly that it comes back to being desperate for God. Truly, genuinely, daily desperate for God. Saying, I am not going to be tough enough in and of myself. I need my God. I'm not going to be strong enough in and of myself. I need my God. I'm not going to be determined in and of myself enough. I need my God. I need to go to Him in the morning. I need to go to Him in the afternoon. I need to go to Him in the evening. For He is the Spirit of fearlessness. See, that is the secret, and that's really what we see this morning in the story of Joshua and Jericho. We see a man who cleaves to God, and from that is fearless. And this is not an easy deal at all, because we're so often just saying, hey, put your head up and go forward, and what we're going to find is you have to put your head down before you can put your head up and go forward. That's going to be the challenge for us today. So, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can open up to the book of Joshua. Right? Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Great book. We're actually going to be looking at a lot. We can't just get right to the wall of Jericho. You've got to build up to that, man, because there's a lot that goes down to make that whole thing shake down properly. And then you'll see some stuff even after it. So, we're going to be kind of spanning basically chapter 1 to chapter 8. That's our mission today. And we're going to start, I think, in one of the most profound chapters in the entire Bible, Joshua chapter 1. Now, it starts in verse 1. And it says, After the death of uh, Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, Moses' assistant, and he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land that I'm giving them. 
Now, one of the habits that I like to do as we kind of look at each story is I want you to know the person you're dealing with. And I got really good news for everybody in this room. When you look at Joshua, you're not dealing with a religious leader. You're not dealing with somebody that's like me. You're actually dealing with somebody that's way more like you. Right? There's a priesthood for the religious stuff of the Israelites. He's not that guy. He's a different guy. If anything, he's a little bit more of a general. He's a CEO. He's a manager. He's a business leader. Uh, He's a guy in the real world with real problems and real challenges. And if you go back and you look at kind of his heritage coming up through the ranks, you'll see that all of his jobs were not religious. They were regular, practical, real jobs where you clock in and you clock out and you have to deal with real life problems. So don't look at the story and say, oh, this isn't for me. No, this is boldly for you. This story's more for you than even me as a pastor. I've got my own stories to deal with. Moses is probably more about me. Joshua's way more about you. And so you have to understand this guy's life is the life you face. His challenges are the challenges you face. And therefore, the solutions that God gives him are solutions for you to use. So what is this guy all about? Well, he starts off as a soldier, right? He's in the trenches. He's seen blood. He's seen pain. He's seen people that he cares about die. So he's going to have his own set of demons to deal with in that. At some point, he moves from soldier to spy, which is awesome, right? Spies out the promised land and is very disappointed. He's he's only two of 12 that think, hey, we can take this thing. So he's sort of outflanked and he has to deal with all of that emotion. Eventually becomes kind of like a page to Moses, then moves up to chief of staff. And then eventually a general. I mean, this guy has seen life. This guy's gone through the ranks. He's had to experience all of those things. And so you look at his life and you're like, man, he's like a little George Washington, a little bit 007. This guy's cool. Right? Perfect for Veterans Day even. This is great. He's a little Sergeant York in there. I mean, he's got it all. But he's also ha- he has some, some character that really matters. We see that he is wise. We see that he's optimistic. We see that he's spirit-filled. All these things you see in books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. He comes up in these different places and you get the sketch of his life. But you have to understand that Joshua is not Moses. And his mission is not the same as Moses' mission. When God gave Moses his mission, he said, all right, what is in your hand? And Moses said, I have a staff. And God said, great, because you're going to shepherd my people. You're going to lead them as a shepherd. You're going to be the deliverer or the liberator. But see, Joshua has a completely different job, and you're going to see in Joshua 8 that he doesn't have a, a, like a, a staff, he has a spear. He's going to hold out the spear like Moses held out the, the rod, because he's a general. He's on a different mission than Moses. And so, because of that, again, his problems, real-life problems, practical dilemmas, emotional times, and he will have to respond quickly. So the question again becomes, well, how do you do that? How do you lead through all these practical challenges and practical problems? What is the number one biggest thing you need to know as you do that? That's why Joshua 1 is so critical. Here's the first thing, the central truth that a leader must know. He says in verse 5, he says, no one will be able to stand against you. He says, you're going into the promised land. Here's the borders. You're going to go do that. And then know this. 
No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses, and I will not fail you or abandon you. This is the first great truth that a very practical leader must know. This is what we all need to know. No matter what you do, man, you, you, you write code, you push a pen, you dig a ditch, you nail up a house, whatever you do, your bookkeeper, your stay-at-home mom, your volunteer in an organization, the first thing you need to know is one who follows God through Christ is God is with you. And you must believe that for a couple of reasons. One is because that's going to give you strength. You know God is with you, man, that is strength. But the other thing is this, if you really believe God is with you, it will curb your sin. If you believe God is in the room with you, if God sees what comes up on your computer, what God sees when you push that pencil, what God sees in your mind, when you know God is there, it shapes the way you do things. It shapes the decisions you make. For good and bad. I know he's with me. I have strength, power, fortitude, promise to bank on, and he's with me. Therefore, man, I want to honor him in what I do. I want to honor him with what I see. I want to honor with him, him with how I act. So he says, Joshua, know your God is with you. Know your God is with you. I mean, this is no small thing to take ownership of. This is the God guarantee. I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to abandon you. But realize I'm with you. I found in my own life, there's these times where things get really hard, right? And it seems like the bad guys are winning. I'm like, wait, I got a white hat. You should be losing. You're a black hat guy. You know, like, like I get into that. And, and I start thinking, I must be all alone if the bad guys seem to be winning. I must be all alone if those who are against me seem to be getting the upper hand. Where's God? This is why this promise is so critical. The Lord is with you. The Lord is present. He's right there in the muck. He's right there in the junk. He's right there amidst your problem with you. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't abandoned you. And so we have to trust that. He's there. Because when you know He's there, when you know He's in the mess with you, then you also know what He seeks of you in the mess. You know what He expects of you. And so that goes into verses 7 through 8. He says this, Be careful to obey all the instruction Moses gave you. So I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not to forsake you. Right? So make sure to be careful to obey all the instructions that Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study the book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Where is the place to start for real life practical problems? Know your God is with you. Where you automatically need to go from there here. Don't, don't get so practical. I got to get up really early because I got a lot to do. And so I don't have time for that. I stayed up really late, hanging out with family, watching TV, doing my thing, surfing the net, doing Facebook, whatever it was. I stayed up. Now it's the end of the day and I'm tired. I, I, don't, I don't have time 
for that I have too many practical things to do. No, this tells us a lot right here. I mean, this is like the fiber of life right here. You want to know how to succeed, because this is what God says. You want to succeed? Bam, right here. So how to succeed, first thing it says, at least as I break this down, it says, study continually. Right? Take this book and study it continually. I mean, think about the different things we invest our time into because we want to get better at it, more efficient at it. We want to make money doing it. So we spend a lot of time in school and we spend a lot of time on sports and we spend a lot of time cultivating gardens and hobbies and everything. We spend a lot of time on stuff that we know is important and we care about. So so God tells Joshua, oh, this is going to be a big deal. Oh, man, you're going into the promised land. There's going to be a lot of challenges. Hey, here's where we start. You need to read this book. Not once. Not twice, continually, continually invest into this book, right? The word is powerful, right? The word, you know what it does? Here's one great thing it does. It confronts us. It confronts our flesh. I guarantee you, I've seen in my own life, when practical problems start to happen, I start to become real practical outside of scripture. And when I go to scripture, what God tells me is, you're doing it wrong, dude. You're starting to get feisty. You're starting to get angry. You're starting to get frustrated. You're trying to cheat the system. You're trying to play the game. You're trying to upend the other guy. That is not the way I play. So when I'm in the Word, it confronts the flesh. That's why we want to be in the Word. The Word also informs the mind. The Word, it feeds the soul. The Word, it strengthens the spirit. And frankly, the Word stiffens the spine. Right? That's why we are to be people of the Word. Now, is getting into this book every morning before you get the kids up or you go to work or you go to work out or whatever you do, is that convenient? No. Is it practical always? No. Is it critical? Absolutely. Right? These lessons we're going to learn are not practical. But they are critical. So God says study continually. He also says meditate day and night so that you will be sure to obey. Right? Meditate day and night. I mean, what does that mean? Here's the hard part about this whole idea of meditation. It means Bible... Plus God, plus time, plus reflection. Right? Bible, plus God, plus time, plus reflection. We have such busy schedules. Some of you, you have your schedule down to 5, 10, or 15 minutes. You're crazy. Right? You're crazy. Now, if you give God a chunk of that, I'm impressed. I'm joyful. I'm glad. But so often we just get these little pockets. How can I cram more in? I need to get it down to 15 minute increments so I can fit more. But see, to do this means I have to actually stop, take time, and just go, God, here's what your word says. Here's who you are. Let me just marinate in that a little bit. Let me know what you want to say to me. We're so good at not listening to God when he wants to speak because we're too busy doing other things. This says you have to slow down and listen. Right? To invest in the word, let God speak to the soul, let him shift us thoroughly. And then from that, we'll obey more completely. But boy, that is not practical. 
But it is critical. It is critical. Because only when we do that, only when we're really meditating on the Word, really when we're taking it in, only when we're taking it in, are we going to have that sense of like reflex in obedience. We're going to recall, oh yeah, there's a verse for that. Oh yeah, there's a story for that. Oh yeah, there's a standard for that. We're not going to just react to our kind of lowest common denominator. We're going to go, what what does God want me to do? Because here's the thing about when we bowed our knee to Christ, we took up a whole new set of principles that are very foreign to how we normally do things. I mean, we have to relearn. You know, when Jesus says, oh, you know, here's this deal. You want to be first, be last. That's a big relearn. When Jesus says, you got this enemy, he strikes you on the one cheek, give him the other one as well. That's a big relearn. You heard it was said, uh, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But now I tell you, love your enemy, do good to them, pray for them. That's a big relearn. Right? So we have to do a lot of relearning. And so from that, God tells this great leader, meditate on the word day and night so you will be sure to obey it. He goes a step further. He says, be careful to obey it all. He says, do not deviate right or left. Right? It's like being on this balance beam. Right? Where it's just like, you, you just got to do, I mean, this is the focus. Right? You just want to do that. I didn't get a real one because I'd fail. Um, but this is the idea. You know, I, I think sometimes we go, oh, because it's grace. I can just kind of kick it. I can do whatever, you know, I can just do my thanks. It's grace. And it is grace. Grace forgives profoundly, completely, thoroughly, perfectly. And grace gives you what you need to obey. So you can do that. Now, is obedience legalism? Because I hear people say that sometimes. Oh, that church is really legalistic. Well, what do you mean by that? They're into obedience. Uh, eh. Legalism and obedience are not the same thing. What is legalism? Legalism is when you add laws to the Bible. That's legalism. And religion loves to do it. Christianity loves to add laws and hold us to things that aren't even in the Bible. Right? That's not good. That's legalism. Or legalism is, if I obey, then God will love me. That's legalism. That's not true. God loves you through Christ, not because you obey. Right? So that could be a form of legalism. Or if I'm self-righteous as I obey. And I, and I think that the sufficiency of my obedience is in me. Then that can be a form of legalism. But to obey humbly, graciously, lovingly, because God loves us in Christ, that's not a legalism. That's, that's just exactly what's expected here. And when we obey, when we do that, you know what that creates? A blessable environment. See, this is why this will become practical really quick. Because if I'm living my life and I go, all right, so I know God is with me. He is my strength. I want to fear him. And that's why I, I do, because I know he's with me. And then from that, I come to his word and I want to know it and study it and understand it and meditate it and, on it and, and know his standard for my life. When we do all of that, it creates a legitimate, blessable environment to our lives. Remember James chapter 5 where it says the prayer of a righteous person avails much. Don't start looking around saying, hey man, all prayers of all people are equal. James would say, no, that's not true. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
The prayer of an unrighteous person not going so far. So you start to look at this and go, oh, wait, let me get this straight. So if I know my God, seek my God, obey my God, know my God's word, then, boy, there's some power there. There is some opportunity there. There is some leverage there that comes from his strength that cannot be found unless this is true. See, this is why then God rounds out and says, only then. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. See, I found this to be the most confronting thing because you know what we do so often? Here's how we see the way forward as a culture. We just need uh, the right morality. We just need the right policy. We just need the right economy. We just need the right military. Now, am I saying all those things aren't important? You're going to see in a minute they are important. But here's the problem. We think those are more important. We sometimes think that is the route forward. And Israel would have the same tendency. Oh, we've got to make sure there's enough food. We've got to make sure there's enough arms. We've got to make sure there's enough, you know, uh, national spirit among the Israelites to go into the promised land. And God says, hey, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, let Let me reset the boundaries for you. If I'm not first and obedience isn't important, then all of this won't matter. We won't have a blessable environment. So he says, we've got to get to a blessable environment. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Now let me tell you what I think is the, 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 the most important set of lines in this whole thing. I and mean, this has all been important. We're spending a lot in chapter 1 and then we're going to accelerate up to chapter 6. But, but this is really, really critical because chapter 1 will shape chapter 6 when we get to the wall. And chapter 7 and chapter 8. But here's the hardest thing and the most important truth that you have to face in this text. It's when God says three times, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous. This is my command, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We read that and we go, that's right, see? So when we're obeying and we're doing all of that, then we can charge the gates of our enemies with great courage and boldness. Don't be afraid. That's not what God is saying to Joshua. Here is the most painful truth to absorb. Where he's going to have to be strong and courageous is to obey the word when it's not practical. Where he's going to have to be strong and courageous is to do the right thing when everything before you says that won't work, that can't happen, that's impossible. If you do it that way, you're naive. That is the great challenge. The greatest thing that we as Christians fight and face is not just fighting and facing our sin. I believe it's fighting against God when it comes to faith. I find the greatest challenge in my life is trusting God. Even more than obeying God. Obeying God, I I go, I can pull that off. Really trusting God, that's hard. And there's going to be times You're going to find in your job or in your family, in your relationships, where you're put into a place where you're going to be left with this decision. If I do it God's way, it just seems foolish. If I do it the way my lawyer says, if I do it the way the rest of the business world does, well, I have a better chance. If I just respond the way I feel, at least I'm going to get my pound of flesh and feel better, yeah. 
And it's in those moments where you're going to have to be strong and courageous and say, God, I choose your way. Even though every ounce of me says, I don't want to choose your way. I don't want to love this enemy. I don't want to let vengeance be yours. Vengeance with me is cool. I'm awesome at vengeance. You've got to let vengeance be his. We're just left with these commands. To serve, do good, be kind. Trust God, have faith, obey. Right? It's going to take strength and courage. That is the hardest battle. And so God sets Joshua up with all of this. And he reminds Joshua, you have to trust the book more than you just trust your brain. You have to start with the book. It will inform the brain. You need to start with the Spirit. He will inform the soul. And give you kind of the matrix you need then to move forward, right? That's what's going to have to happen. And see, there's a part of this, I look and I go, man, and if we do that, it's more freeing anyway. You know how much pressure we feel to perform increasingly? You want to stay the strongest guy on the heap? You have to stay the strongest guy on the heap. You can never weaken. You can never, you just have to keep getting better and better and better. That's a lot of stress. You have to keep maintaining all the time. If it's going to be all about you and in your capacity... Versus being strong and courageous in the things that God provides. And so the message is very simple, very succinct, very sure. And really armed with this, we see that then Joshua moves into planning with God, as opposed to basically planning regardless of God. So when I said those other things matter, they matter only when they've come through the filter of theology. They've come through the filter of the word. They've come through the filter of prayer and meditation. It's like, all right, now that I know that God has housed me, I will make different decisions than if I'm kind of distant from God, which is true. I I watch this all the time. My wife and I do a lot of marriage counseling and premarital counseling and parental counseling. and, and, And people who say, man, we're really seeking God make very different decisions than those who are not for the same set of problems. So it really matters. And so for him, it matters. He's seeking God. And then he makes practical plans, but it's with God in mind, not despite or regardless of what God does. And so it says in verse 10, then Joshua then commanded the officers of Israel, he said, go through the camp, tell the people to get their provisions ready. This is real practical, right? Get the food, get the stuff. It says in three days, you will cross the Jordan River and take possession of the land your God is giving you. Your wives and your children and your livestock, they need to remain here. Great idea. Right? Real practical. It says, but your strong warriors, fully armed, must lead the other tribes across the Jordan. Again, so he's just, again, he's giving them practical commands now. He's breaking it out. He's seeing just like any good supply guy would. You guys stay here. You guys go. You gather them all together. This is what I need you to do. Uh, You need to make sure these guys get rested because we're going to go to war. This is a big deal. And so they said, hey, man, we're going to do whatever you command of us. We will go wherever you send us. Again, just practical function. And I love this. Anyone who rebels against your orders and does not obey your words and everything you command will be put to death, right? Very practical. Anybody gets in your way, we'll whack them, right? Simple stuff. But you see the heart there, and I think it's so important where we as Christians must be a people who are literally driven by a God-centeredness. 
We don't just say we're God-centered. We don't just say we're Christians. We don't just go to church on Sunday and clock it out and call it good. But we say the very fabric of everything I do needs to be saturated with a life, heart, and mind committed to spiritual things and spiritual ways. And it's that spiritual climate that then will control every way I look at the, the world around me. Right? That's what we're getting at. That was the heart of Joshua. That was the heart of God for Joshua. And so he's off and running. And with that, it says Joshua sent spies secretly to spy out from Israel at the camp near a name that if I say, I'll get in trouble. All right. So um, last week, I just talked about a shik razor and people thought I dropped that bomb. All right. So just saying, I got to got to clear, steer clear of that. All right. So the spies, they go into the promised land to scope it out, right? And then it says, so the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed the night in that home. Now, I look at this and go, we don't teach that in Sunday school, do we? Right? And then the two spies went into the land. Where did they stay? The home of a prostitute? What's that? They're like a nurse. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Move on, children. All right, so... Imagine coming home from that business meeting. Honey, where did you stay? Oh, you don't want to talk about it. All right. So, um, so they go into the land, right? And it says, but someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out on the land. I mean, right here, I'm like, this is like Maxwell Smart and Johnny English. These are not good spies, apparently, right? Like, you know, like, really? I mean, these are not masters of disguise. They get dined out day one, right? Day one. I'm big city, everything else, day one. All right. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out these men who have come into your house, for they have come to spy out the whole land. And then Rahab does something that causes us all to go, oh, what's the moral dilemma here? She lies. Right? This evil, wicked king wants to figure out what the spies are up to and what they're doing so that he says, send them out. And she goes, they're not here. They did this and they did that. And then they left and they ran. And she sends them on a wild Jewish chase, really, is all she does. Right? So just go chase the wild Jew boys across the land and they, they're not here, right? And so that's what they go do. And then she goes and she talks to them that evening. And she says this, I know the Lord has given you this land and we are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror for we have heard how the Lord made a path, dry path through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. That was 40 years ago. I mean, this has been a long time, right? They're still aware. Oh, there's that time. They were coming. Took a long time to get here, but they're here now. But their God did some stuff. So she says, no wonder that our hearts have melted in fear for the Lord. Your God is the supreme God of the heavens above the earth below. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. Says, then they offered and said, you know what? We guarantee it. If you don't betray us, we will make sure that you are rescued by the Lord who gives us this land. And see, the real heart here is you see in that moment, in a very rough way, somebody that really comes to faith in God. Right? Where all she knows is your God is supreme out of the other gods. He scares me something fierce. I know judgment's coming. And I just, I just, I just want to follow where you guys are following. I want to go with your God. Right? This is why in the book of James and the book of Hebrews, it says, man, her faith, her faith is amazing. Because she, knowing nothing, I mean, she's absolutely ignorant 
outside of a a 40-year-old story and a couple of rumors. But she says, that's enough for me to believe. And And I want that God and I want you to be my people. And so they say, great. So when the Bible praises Rahab for her faith, it's not praising her for her lie, but her lie is rooted in something deeper, which is she fears God. And in her ignorance, she does the best that she can, just like we all do. And that is sufficient for God to then bring her into this promise. So that all unfolds, and then it says in verse 23 of Joshua 2, Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened to them. And they said, The Lord has given us the whole land, for the people of the land are terrified of us. I love this scene because think about poor Joshua some years earlier was one of the 12 spies and went to the land and then everybody vetoed him except for Caleb. Like, that's our land. Everybody says, no. Right? Now, all this time later, he's wise. You know what he does? He only sends two, which is genius. He doesn't want a committee. Right? So, he just sends two and they come back and like, oh, this is it. This is the time. Right? Ready to go. The thing is, though, this won't be a conventional invasion. Israel needs to still know some things. The first thing they need to know is that it is a holy God who leads them. It says in Joshua chapter 3, three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp, giving these instructions to the people. It says, when you see the Levitical priesthood carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow them. Since you have never traveled this way before, i.e. behind the Ark in this way, under this kind of new set of conditions, that's what he means by that, It says, they will guide you. Stay about a half a mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. So here you have the ark, right? So the ark is this big gold box. It's wood and then gold over the top has these two big cool angels with eagle's wings on, right? Big cool box. Got the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron, and a jar of manna. You go, okay, I don't even know what that's all about. Right? We get into all of that kind of symbolism, but it really communicates four basic things. You have the law of God, you have the power of God, you have the provision of God, and you've got the presence of God. That's one spooky box. All right? If you're the bad guys, that's a spooky box. And that box is going to go before, because for the Israelite, it's not spooky, it's holy. For the unsaved, one day they will see the glory of God, and it's nothing but pure terror. But for one in covenant with God, God's holiness is still fiery. And in some ways it is fearful, but it's also comforting. Right? Holiness is that weird thing where it's both close to us and we feel unapproachable at the same time. I mean, that's the nature of holiness. Right? We have this sense of, I come with reverence, but also I'm attracted to. That's, that's what holiness is. And so God wants the people to realize that their God is holy and he's both with them, but he's different from them. That he's approachable, but in another way, he feels very unapproachable because, again, that is his holiness. Also, God wants them to know that their God is going ahead of them. They're not supposed to race ahead. They let their God go ahead. He's going ahead of them, and he's going to handle these things. They need to keep a distance. So they do. From this, they also learn that it's their holy God that opens. It says, give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant in verse 8 of chapter 3. When you reach the banks of the River Jordan, take a few steps into the river and stop there. Now, the river's at flood stage, it says. It's just a crazy, muddy mess. It says, but as soon as the feet of the priests, in verse 15, 
who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began to back up a great distance all the way to a town called Adam. And the water below that point flooded into the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. Right? Every generation needs a God moment. The previous generation, Red Sea, right? Everybody crosses on dry ground. Now, 40 years later, that generation's dead. This new generation needs to see God flex and move. And he does. And they all walk through. And from that, there's this whole ritual of remembrance. Where rocks are carried and then they're piled. And all of that is to remember what God has done for them. Because every generation needs to remember some great thing that God has done. But Israel's not the only group to remember. The enemies of Israel, they also remember. So it says in Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, when the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived among the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River uh, so the people of Israel could cross, their hearts were lost. They just lost heart and were paralyzed with fear because of them. They're like, oh man, we've seen this before. And so you look at this and you go, man, God is honored. People are motivated. Power is shown. Enemies are worried. Everything is practically poised for success. And yet that's usually when God cuts into your plans. Literally. This is great. At that time, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the second generation of Israelites. Awesome. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel. I mean, I mean, what kind of plan is this? Right? You guys fired up? Yeah! Roll, roll, roll! Bust out the knives, boys. You know, like, pull up your robes! We're going to battle! You know, like, this is not, nobody's going to do this plan. It goes from raw, 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 to ow, 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 ow. You know, like... Guy sitting around the camp, dude, don't make me laugh. Don't make me laugh, all right? I don't want that. What's great is the location here, Giboth Her Arlioth. You know what that literally translates? Uh, Hill of the foreskins. I'm like, thousands of guys. I'm not trying to be crass. This is why we don't teach this in Sunday school, you know? But I'm sitting there reading, going, Hill of the foreskins. Was it like this tall or this? You know, I don't... It had to really happen. That's why we don't teach it to kids in Sunday school, right? So this is what God does, right? So when everything is sailing along, you never know when God is going to suddenly send you down a path where you go, wait, that isn't practical. No, it's not practical at all, but it has deep spiritual purpose. He said, well, why did they do this? And he says, well, those who left Egypt have all been circumcised, but none born after the Exodus during the wandering in the wilderness. They had never been circumcised, right? So the Lord said to Joshua after they did all of this, today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. In other words, there's this truth that being right with God is better than just going on your own and not being right with God. Even if it's not convenient, even again, if it's not practical, there's going to be a lot of things where God asks you of some, for you to do something, and you're going to go, man, all the odds are stacked against me, and the way you want me to do it is highly uh, lacking in function. And God's going to say, don't worry, I know what I'm doing, because to be right with me is better than to try to do it alone and not be right. You want the slow route, do something without God, and you'll have the slow route. 
The fast route is doing it with God, even if he wants you to take a detour for a season. And that's all this is. It's a detour for a season. And so after they all heal up, it's time to roll, right? And as they roll, they find another lesson they have to learn. This is what's so crazy about finally getting to the wall. They learn there's an impartial God who is partial to holiness, right? Everybody's healed. They're walking. They get there. But then it says in verse 13 of chapter 5, when Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. And Joshua went up to him and he demanded, are you friend or foe? Here's the weirdest answer. He says, neither one. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now, here's what's so weird. You go, wait, they're the Israelites. Uh, They've got a leader. They've got a Bible. Uh, Now they don't have any foreskin. You know, like, those are God's people in every sense of it. So you would think that this angel, this commander of the angelic host of God would say, oh, we're on your side, bro. We're just kind of hooking up, shaking hands. This is our allegiance, our allies here. This is a coalition of the godly. And instead he says, "Uh, neither. I'm neither friend nor foe. See, here's the the big lesson there. Um, As long as you're on God's side, he's on your side. This angel. I mean, that's what Joshua needs to realize. Right? This angel is loyal to God. And as long as the Israelites are on God's side, that angel's on their side. The day the Israelites say we're not on God's side anymore is the day that angel says, huh, funny, I'm not on your side either. Right? I'm not friend or foe, I'm loyal to God. Why this is important is because this angel is going to help them in the conquering of Jericho, and eventually this angel is going to flip and he's going to conquer Israel at other times in their history. When they drift from God, when they walk from God, he will use this angel to do both. And so right from the get-go, they need to realize that this angel is loyal only to God. And the key to that is humility before God. So it says with that in verse 14b, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. He says, I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want to do with your servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for this place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua did that very thing. In other words, Jericho is God's city. It's not going to be Joshua's. It's not going to be Israel's. Right? It's God's territory. And then they arrive at Jericho. Finally, we get to the walls of the city. It says, now the gate of the city of Jericho was tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go in or out. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king and its strong warriors, not as a possession, but as a winnable task, but in the weirdest way possible. It says, you and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast of the ram's horn, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. Now we read this and we go, yeah, that's an awesome plan. In what universe do you live? Right? Like we read the Bible so often we forget that this sounds like a horrible idea. I mean, imagine some guy going into the Joint Chiefs, you know, okay, we found Osama bin Laden, we got a plan. We're going to fly in really quietly at night, we're going to drop off a bunch of Navy SEALs and the Navy marching band. And, right? (laughs) We're going to put SEALs in the front, we're going to put SEALs in the back, we're going to put the marching band right there, and we're going to get this precious moments box. And we're going to, you know, we're going to have the precious moments box, and we're going to have the band, and they're going to play Anchors Away, My Boy, once a day for seven, you know, like, 
I mean, you're like, yeah, right. You know, that's, that's what we're going to do. Okay, now that sounds stupid. Yes. Just as stupid as this plan would have seemed to the Israelites had God not prepared them with all the other stuff. But this is the plan. God's going to do something crazy. But the crazy thing about the plan, the thing that we sometimes overlook, is that this is the evangelism of Jericho. In other words, God could have just showed up one day and just mushroom cloud. You know? Wominator 3000 again. Thank you, VeggieTales. All right, so he could have done that. But instead, what he has is every day, all the soldiers are quiet. They're, they're dead silent. They just walk with their arms and these horns of worship are blown day after day after day. And the people in the city, they're fearful. They're scared to death. We're going to die. They're given seven days of opportunity. And see, this is an impossible. Think about Rahab. She needs two spies. She's so freaked out. She just needs that God. Now they're seeing the might of Israel quietly walking minus seven horns. This is your chance. This is your chance today. No today. No today. No today. No today. I mean, again, God knows what he's doing. It's an opportunity. But then the seventh day comes. And it says, and when the people heard in verse 20, the sound of the ram's horn, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed and the Israelites charged straight into the town and they captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords. Men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. This is that other part we just don't teach kids in Sunday school. Right? We teach kids, and the walls came down! And then they kept walking. Like, like nothing R-rated happened. Right? But something very hard for us to wrestle with happened. It's this story that we're not even comfortable with as adults. We don't know what to do with this. Let me see if I can help you just a little bit. I can't help you completely because it's one of those things that are just hard. But you have to understand these people were not like relatively normal great people. You look in Leviticus chapter 18 and you see the acts of the Canaanites, right? This group of people that they're invading. They were highly incestuous people. I mean, like, highly. Like, God has to say, don't be like the Canaanites where grandpa's sleeping with his granddaughter, where your aunt's sleeping with your nephew. Where I mean, like, he has to, all this stuff, it's not just as simple as just basins. This is like everybody's sleeping with everybody. It's a mess. And if you're not sleeping with your family members, you're sleeping with just your friends or your neighbors. Or if you're not doing that, then you're sleeping honestly with your neighbor's pets because that's what he says too. So you're sleeping with the livestock. You're, you're, it's, it's just a complete and utter abomination. It's awesome, like the children's ministry just walked in when I said that. Um, sorry about that. Um, that's why you don't teach that in Sunday school. Okay, um, it's just a vile environment, right? They're taking their children and they're sacrificing them to their gods so their crops will grow. So when we look and we go, oh man, this, 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 this eradication of everybody. Why would a good and loving God do such a thing? Because these people were deeply, deeply vile, sinful, and just hardened. In fact, later in Joshua chapter 11, it says, No one in this region made peace with the Israelites, except, except those from Gideon, because they basically lied to Joshua and he fell victim to it because he didn't seek God. But nobody else made peace. Why? For the Lord had hardened their heart, caused them to fight against the Israelites. I mean, they were just a hard people and God had hardened their heart. And God had hardened their heart because according to Romans 1, they knew of God. 
Right? They were aware of God's standard in some way. Rahab was, and she's a prostitute. Certainly the king's going to know. Certainly the officials are going to know. If a prostitute can know, they can know. The difference is Rahab is not hardened to God, and she cleaves to God, where the rest of them are hard and they don't want it. And so God just gives them over. He just makes them hard because they're hard. God is serious about sin. And so the city falls. The people are slaughtered. But then in verse 22, it says, Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, Keep your promise, go to the prostitute's house, and bring her out along with all of her family. And then from there, the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only the things made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron were kept in the treasury of the Lord's house. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his reputation spread throughout the land. It was basically warning people, You might want to go before we get here. God has given us the land. It says also uh, that God has vomited out these people from the land because he's bringing judgment on them because they've been so sinful. So boy, this whole thing spreads like wildfire. God is up to stuff. And we read that story and go, yay! So, God's man is victorious. God's people are victorious. Well, the problem is in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. It says, but Israel violated the instructions about the things apart, set apart for the Lord and a man named Achan, whose name means anchor, had stolen some of these dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. And so they go to battle, it says in verse 2, in the town of Ai. And when they returned, they told Joshua, uh, there's no need for us to, to go up there with a bunch of people, right? Just send two or 3,000. Uh, we're going to be able to take this easy. Why? Because we just took that city with its big wall. Right? So just send a few. No big deal. Just a few thousand. So it says approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but then they were soundly defeated. Because of why? Well, because of that dude in verse 1. It says, The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slopes. And the Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. There it is right there. You trust God, obey God, follow God. You have courage and strength. You stop obeying. You stop having the sense of conviction about the Lord. You melt in fear. Here's the crazy part. Guess who doesn't die in the battle? The sinful guy. So Achan who sins doesn't die in the battle. Great lesson. Your sin doesn't always affect you. Right? Oftentimes your sin will affect far more people than it will you. It'll affect your kids, it'll affect your spouse, it'll affect your work, it'll affect your church, it'll affect a lot more than it affects you. So they get just creamed. So it says, Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothing in dismay and they threw dust on their heads and they bowed down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening and they cried out, O sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River? You're just going to kill us. I mean, this sounds just like the Israelites back in the desert. God, Why? And then the Lord said to Joshua, get up. He says, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen things that were just for me. Remember that angel? Friend or foe? And he said, neither? Yeah. That angel's on my side. You won Jericho because you had an obedient camp. You lost I because you had a disobedient camp. Get up off your face and deal with the sin. That's all he's saying. It says, get up, command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. And this is what you're going to do. All right? There's sin hidden among Israel. 
So he says, in the morning you must present, prevent, or present yourselves before the tribes, and the Lord is going to point out the tribe of the guilty man. This is so much pressure, man, right here. He's going to point out the tribe of the guilty man, then the clan where he is in, then the family that he's from, and then one by one they will come forward. Can you imagine the tension? You know, like 12 tribes, that tribe, come forward, right? That clan, that family, those people, that guy. So finally Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make a confession and tell me what you have done. Don't hide it from me. And Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 20 silver, 20, or, uh, 200 silver coins, and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them. Man, I know that story. It says, they are hidden in the ground beneath my tent, with the silver buried deeper than the rest. Isn't that weird? He had a plan A and a plan B, right? It's like, all right, I know I'm sinning by doing this and I'll hide this, but if somehow this gets caught, I'll have this and nobody will know it's below this. I mean, he's like doubly sinful, right? As though God can't see, right, in any of our lives. So Joshua says, go and find out. Sure enough, they come back. Here's all the stuff, including the silver, it says, then Joshua and all the Israelites took Achan, the silver, the robe, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his goats, his tent, and everything he had. And they brought them to the valley of Anchor, which is Achan. And then Joshua said to him, you have brought trouble on us. The Lord will now bring trouble on you. And all the Israelites stoned Achan and his family and burned their bodies and piled a great heap of stones over Achan, which remains to this day. God is serious about sin. God is just serious about it. We, that's our problem. We go, oh gosh, this is so overkill. Notice how we do that. We've decided that God is doing overkill. Now, this is what we do. That's too much. God's too crazy. I couldn't follow a God who would do such a thing like I'm in control. What's amazing is Rahab, a Canaanite, acted in faith and is granted deliverance, but Achan, an Israelite, who acted faithless, faithlessly, suffers destruction. Again, God has a standard. I look at this and say, but praise Jesus that he has suffered in our stead so that we don't have to be Achans. We are all an Achan. We are all an Achan. And Jesus said, I will take the place that you have earned and I will be your Achan for you. Praise Jesus for being our Achan. This is from there. They took the city, right? The power of period and strategy. Joshua says, all right. God says, go, go take the city. This time it's not 3,000, it's 30,000. So Joshua's still practical. We're not taking that 3,000 this time. 30,000 of his best warriors, they go and they fight and they ambush the city and there is victory. There Joshua holds out a spear and they win the battle. And how does it end? Well, it ends on a proper note. It says, then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, and he followed the commands that Moses, the Lord's servant, had written in the book of instruction. He made an altar from stones that are an uncut and have not been shaped with iron tools. In other words, he's not making a graven image. And it says, And on the altar they presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites watched Joshua as he copied onto the stones of the altar the instructions Moses had given to them. And Joshua then read to them all the blessings and curses Moses had written in the book of instruction. Every word of every command that Moses had ever given was read to the entire assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. It comes right back to chapter 1. Right? That's the big idea. Take the big picture. 
It starts with know God, fear God, love God, seek God, know His Word, take in His Word, live by His Word, be tenacious in His Word. And then you face all these challenges, all these practical problems. And in the end, it still closes in the same way. Seek the Lord, know the Lord, fear the Lord, follow the Lord, trust His Word, do what He says. It's all the same. Your life, my life, their life, it's all the same. In fact, I realize that people live by formulas, and I close with these four formulas. Some people live by the formula do, but they lack obedience and they lack seeking God. That's just worldliness. They might do good things or kind things or nice things. They might do bad things, horrible things, vile things, but they just do, but they don't obey and they don't seek, and that's just worldly. And that's a formula. Others have a formula where they obey and they do, but they don't seek. That's religion, right? You do what the law says, you fulfill it in that sense, you obey, but you don't seek God on a daily basis. You don't want to just dwell with Him. That's just going to end up being religion, and that gets fatiguing for you and for a lot of times the people around you. A third formula is people seek God, and they do things in life, but they don't necessarily obey. That's hypocrisy, right? Right? They, oh, they love to worship and raise their hands, but they don't like to obey when God wants them to the rest of the week. They do nice things for people, but they don't obey God's word. It's hypocrisy. What we see in Joshua, which should be true in us, is that we seek and obey and do. That's the godly life. Now, right now, I want you to go ahead and bow your heads. Every one of us. This message was really different for me to even try to jump into because I, I quickly realized that it wasn't nearly as funny as it was sobering. It wasn't as uh, easy to quip little statements as it was reflective. And so today, I want it to be a day of reflection. Both for those in this room who know Jesus and for those in this room who may not. Now, for those who do know Jesus... The question I have for us is, what is our formula? What is, what is your formula as you look at your daily affairs? Is your formula that formula that says, I, I, I must dwell with my God. I must know his word to obey my God. And then from that, I want to do good things in the name of my God. For that is godly. Is that your formula? Or do you find your formula to be other things where it's, I don't really read or try to understand my Bible. I just try to be a good person uh, and, and pray maybe just before I go to sleep. Right? I, I try to do good things and occasionally read my Bible uh, and we pray before dinner. Because what God is looking for is really people to sold out, his people to be sold out for him. Fully and thoroughly. And that's the challenge I want to bring today. If you go, man, I want that. I want to be sold out. I'm asking you today to make that your prayer and commitment where you say, Jesus, forgive me for treating you as a secondary thing. That everything else gets the lion's share of my time, my attentions, my passions, my pursuits. And, and, and then you, you get leftovers if there's anything left over. I want this to be the place where you stake your claim today. You say, Jesus, I want to do uh, what you want of me 100%.
you can make that your prayer, your way today. And for those who don't know Jesus in this room, today is the day of salvation. It's like God marching around in your life saying, today's the day, today's the day, today's the day. He's blowing the horn, today's the day. If you sense the Holy Spirit working in your life, saying, I need to follow Jesus. I want you to right now just simply pop up a hand and say, you want, I want to follow this Jesus. I want to repent of my sins. I want to follow this Jesus. I need this Jesus in my life. If that is you, I want you right now to just simply lift a hand. Nobody's looking around. Today is the day of salvation. To recommit, to follow for the first time. Jesus, I thank you for these reminders. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this challenge and for your truth. In your awesome name, amen.